Good morning. Not long ago, I read about a man in Taiwan who was uh, strolling around in his backyard one day in his, around his pond, and he found a three-headed turtle. In Taiwan, uh, the Chinese folklore believes that turtles are sacred, so he took the three-headed turtle up to the local temple there, and the priest at the temple told him that this three-headed turtle was a gift from God and that the turtle's markings depicted a diagram that was supposed to plot this man's destiny, his future. The turtle, um, the only problem with this turtle is because it had three heads, it walked in a zigzag pattern. The, head, the heads couldn't agree which way to go. And so, you know, it just kept kind of going back and forth. And I thought, you know, that's, that is a great metaphor for our lives, isn't it? Because we all have shells with multiple heads sticking out. One of them, of course, is us. Our head sticks out. Um, God, you know, we've got the Godhead as well. But we also have a lot of other heads from people that we allow to um, somehow have a head on our shell. And the challenge in our lives, of course, is when we allow multiple heads, our lives go zigzag as well, don't they? If we allow the Lord Jesus Christ to be the one that's actually calling the shots and leading, then sometimes we'll still zigzag, but at least we're zigzagging according to plan and not in a, in a tug-of-war of wills deciding who's going to lead this thing. When you look at the lives of people who don't know Jesus Christ, the challenge, I think, for them is that they, they live multiple, multiple directions, for themselves, for their spouse, for their kids, maybe for God, but Every, depending on the day or depending on the emotion, there's a different direction and there's a different emphasis, and life has no real meaning other than the moment that you're living in. Well, I want to talk today about renewing your heart for God, because all of us, I think, would have a, at least a, a, admitting that God is the only head that we want really leading our lives. But we have a challenge because our flesh is involved, and our, our own head and our own selfishness, whether it's what we want to do or whether it's we want to kind of put God aside and do what our spouse wants to do or what our kids or grandkids want us to do or what our church wants to do or our Christian culture says we should be doing. There are so many competing voices to what God actually wants us to do. So turn with me, if you would, to the book of Joshua. And let's look at the very last chapter, Joshua 24. Some weeks ago, we've started this series where we take a message from each book of the Bible. We have finished the Pentateuch, or the first five books, where the Lord not only has created the world and sin has marred that creation, his, God's intent of his blessing on creation, but God decided that the way that he's going to make that creation continue to be blessed is through one man, Abraham. And through Abraham would come a great nation, the Hebrew nation, 
that ultimately went to Egypt, became slaves. God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and made them a unique nation, a kingdom of priests, that they would become God's unique people on the earth and a people through whom that blessing would ultimately spread to all people on the earth. Well, he takes them out of Egypt, takes them down to Mount Sinai, reveals his word to them, makes a covenant with them, and then leads them up into the promised land, the land that he had promised to Abraham. But the people didn't have faith to follow God, so they wandered for another 40 years till that generation dies out. Take two, they come up again, and this time Joshua actually does lead them in to the promised land, which is what we're going to be looking at today. Joshua 24 is actually at the end of the conquest, as it's often called, where Joshua takes the people into the land and they, they take the land that God has given them. Um, so let's read the first verse here, and then we'll just allow the text itself to sort of lay out the history, because there's so much more to discuss regarding its significance as well as God renewing our heart for, for the Lord. Joshua 24.1, then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers, and they presented themselves before God. Uh, Kathy and I took our daughters years ago up to Washington, D.C., and we saw all the monuments and it was, uh, it was really a neat time. One of the monuments that was so uh, visually just stunning is the Lincoln Memorial. If you've been to Washington, you know the orientation of it. it it's these this wonderful large steps that lead up to what looks by design almost as a temple with the statue of Abraham Lincoln sitting there uh, looking out over, you know, the, the, the mall or is it the mall or the mall? I get England and, and uh, the mall. Uh, but the, the, the big green that goes all the way down, you know, to the other monuments, and it's just beautiful. Well, if you stand on those steps and you look at, uh, at one of the steps there, there's a plaque on the step that talks about, you know, this is, the, this is the place where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. back in 1963 gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. And you can look at the photographs of that and see, you know, Dr. King standing there overlooking this vast crowd of people. And I actually read through his I Have a Dream speech this week, and it's uh, amazingly well-worded, just so poignant. But one of the things that really struck me about reading that was he makes mention of where they were standing. And I thought about how powerful it was, not only to give the words that he gave at the time that he gave it, but where he gave it, that he was standing on the steps of, the, of this monument that uh, honored the great emancipator, Abraham Lincoln. And Dr. King was talking about the fact that it's been 100 years, and yet the blacks are still very much uh, underfoot. They're not, they don't have the freedom that, that Lincoln designed. But the point is that the place of the message added to the weight of the message. The place of the message preached just as loudly as the content of the message itself. That was Shechem. That was Shechem for Joshua. 
Hold your place here in Joshua and turn back to your maps in the back of your Bible, if you've got maps, and find pretty much any Old Testament map that shows Israel. And we're looking for Shechem. If you look, if you find the Dead Sea, or sometimes it's called the Salt Sea, it's the biggest body of water there in Israel, not the Mediterranean, the big body on the left, but the, the large Dead Sea right there at, at the bottom-ish. Look at the top of the Dead Sea and go left and you'll see Jerusalem. Then look right above Jerusalem, just keep going straight north and you should run into Shechem. Shechem was right in the middle of the nation. It was a very significant crossroads. My map doesn't have roads and, so, and it, there's no terrain, it's just all flat. So you can't really tell. But Shechem was very significant. In fact, you can turn back to Joshua now. In fact, it was so significant that it was one of the three, only three cities on the western side of the Jordan River that were designated as cities of refuge. It would be like picking the, the key geographical cities at a, at a part of the United States that was easy for everybody to get to. It was on the main road going north and south, the way of the patriarchs. It was at a major crossroads going east and west. So it was a very strategic place and very convenient place for people to gather. And, um, and Joshua brings the people here to Shechem. And he mentions several events that occurred here. Let's uh, continue now in verse 2 and see what it is about Shechem that's so significant and why that matters to us. Verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river, which means the Euphrates River, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Let's pause there for a second and emphasize something that maybe not didn't mean a lot to us as we read it, but if we were Hebrews reading this and hearing this, all of a sudden history would start exploding in our minds. So let's, let's make that connection. Again, hold your place here in Joshua and turn back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12. Joshua mentions several people here which would immediately have been significant to his hearers, but we need a little background. Genesis 12, look at verse 6. Just to summarize the first five verses, God calls Abraham to leave where he is, and Joshua tells us to leave his idols, and to go to the land that he will show, that God will show Abraham. Verse 6, Abraham passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So as Joshua is saying, here's the history. Uh, God called Abraham from beyond the Euphrates to this land. 
well, not just to this land, but to Shechem, where they were standing. And when, they, and, and when God called him there, what was the first thing that the Lord said to Abraham at Shechem? Verse 7, to your descendants, I will give this land. And Joshua was talking to the fulfillment of those words. So to hear Abraham, all Joshua would have had to say is, Abraham, and immediately the Hebrews would have thought back to Genesis 12, verse 6 and 7. This was, Shechem was the first place Abraham came, when he came to the land. We are standing where Abraham was. Not only that, we're standing where Abraham was when God reiterated his promise to give him the land. Now, turn from Genesis 12 to Genesis chapter 35. Joshua also mentioned Jacob. Genesis 35. Genesis 35, verse 2. So Jacob said to his household, notice it says his household, and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourself and change your garments. And let's arise and go to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. Now we didn't read the whole story here of um, Jacob, but if you just glance back to the left, the chapter or two, you see that Jacob has been living in Shechem. Jacob has been living just outside of Shechem, I should say. And it hasn't been a good experience. Jacob's daughter, Dinah, was raped. Jacob's sons go in and kill the men. Uh, It's not a pretty picture. And after after that scene, the Lord tells him to leave that area and to go south. But before they go south, Jacob's household, amazingly, had idols And Jacob says, let's leave our idols here. They're not coming with us. And Jacob buries them at Shechem. So see the pattern. You can begin to see the pattern developing. Abraham left his idols, came to the land. First place he came was Shechem. Jacob has come back into the land. We didn't read that, but he had left, and now he's come back into the land. He dwells at Shechem where he leaves his idols. Okay, so back now to Joshua 24. We won't read verses 5 through 13. It's basically a a wonderful summary of Israel's history. But if you just glance down through it, you see it's the Lord talking, and he uses the word I a lot. I did this. I did that. I brought you out. I gave you this land. I was not willing to listen to Balaam. Uh, I delivered you. I sent the hornet. I mean, it was over and over, God saying, I did this and I did that. I am the reason, God says, that you are succeeding, that you are here in the land. It's because of me and, and my grace. God's grace is what made the difference. Last time we were together, we looked at the previous book, Deuteronomy. And you remember we said that uh, there were two words that actually sort of related together in Hebrew. 
there was water and heaven. In Hebrew, it's maim and shemaim. And the connection there that the Lord made in Deuteronomy 11 was, I want you to remember when you get in the land, the land doesn't have a lot of water. And if you're going to have water, it comes from me. And for you to live in the land, you've got to obey me. And if you obey me, it'll rain. And if you don't obey me, it won't rain. And that'll motivate you to obey me. And then it'll rain. So if you're going to succeed in the land, you have to obey. That very same chapter, we didn't read it last time, but that very same chapter, God tells Israel, now when you get in the land, make a beeline to Shechem. And when you go to Shechem, I want half of you to stand on this mountain and half of you to stand on this mountain and to tell each other what I just told you, the blessings and the curses, as it were. That is, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I won't bless you. Shechem was in a valley. If you picture two mountains and the, the, the valley in between them, Shechem was right in the middle. And so for the nation to basically to divide and have to stand on this mountain and have to stand on this mountain was Shechem right in the middle. This is what God told the Israel to do as soon as they got into the land. Now we're in Joshua 24. We won't turn there, but if we were to turn to Joshua 8, you'll see that's exactly what Joshua did. Joshua brought them to Shechem. They did the blessings and the curses. Joshua set up an altar. And so now all that history is background. Picture yourself as the Hebrew standing there. You're not just standing at Shechem because, you know, there was a good Howard Johnson's there and everybody decided, hey, let's go up and, and uh, get it. It's real convenient for everybody. No. You're standing at Shechem because it is a very significant place in your history. Abraham abandoned his idols and went to Shechem. Jacob abandoned his idols at Shechem. Um, they themselves had come to Shechem when they came in the land and vowed that they would be faithful to God. And now, after the conquest, Joshua brings them back to Shechem one more time to reiterate their, their covenant and, and renew that their passion was for Jesus Christ, well, for the Lord, I should say. So this wasn't their first time at Shechem, and it was very, very significant. So all of that, now look at verse 14. Joshua says, Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He says, therefore, therefore, in light of all that God's done for you, God says, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this, therefore, Fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the foreign gods which your father served. And the implication is you have them with you. Put them away. Just like Abraham did. Just like Jacob did. Just like we all promised we would do when we came here at the beginning of the conquest. Now here we are at the end of the conquest. And he says, fear the Lord. And notice the words, sincerity and truth. We'll come back to those words uh, here in just a minute. Sincerity and truth. 
Augustine said this about idolatry. He said, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshiped. In short, it's basically anything that competes with our relationship with God is an idol. We tend to worship that which we think we need. If I was to ask you, what is it that you worship? Or maybe you should say it the other way, what is it that you really need? The answer would be what we worship and what we sacrifice for. We still sacrifice, don't we? We give up a lot of things. We give up money. We give up time. We give up uh, our passion, our gifts. We sacrifice our lives for that which we worship. For some of us, it's kids. For some of us, it's significance. For some of us, it's money. For some of us, it's God. But we sacrifice for whatever it is we think we need and for whatever it is that we're worshiping. Joshua calls them together at Shechem and says, remember what Abraham did, remember what Jacob did, remember what you yourself did. And then he says in the most famous verse here in the book that we read, verse 15, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. You know, most Christian bookstores leave out half of this verse. If you notice, you know, on the plaque that you have hanging in your house that has this verse, it says, choose for, your day, choose for yourself today whom you will serve, dot, dot, dot. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's, that's usually all it says. And I, it makes sense. I mean, if you, not many of us want verses on our walls that talk about the Amorites. <laughs> so, it, you know, the dot, dot, dot is just sort of, you know, it's just sort of assumed. Yeah, there's all that stuff too, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Wait a minute. What's all that stuff? What's the dot, dot, dot? It's, it's significant, and it's very applicable if we look at the timeless principles. Notice Joshua's, the details of what he says. Choose for yourselves whom you will serve. And then he gives several options. First of all, the gods which your father served. You may have grown up in a Christian home. Your fathers, your family may have served the Lord, but maybe not. Or maybe it was sort of like Jacob, pre-Shechem. You know, there were household gods in the house. There was not a complete devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ in your home. Maybe you went to church, but maybe, you know, Monday through Saturday, it was just kind of every man for himself. On Sunday, the Godhead stuck out of the shell, but on Monday through Saturday, anybody's guess as to who is leading this thing. I don't know how you grew up, but you do. <laughs> and of course, we all know our family background, none of which were perfect. Joshua is saying it doesn't matter uh, what your parents' priorities were, even if they were great, even if your parents' priorities were absolutely, couldn't have been better. Joshua says you still need to choose for yourself. You still need to choose for yourself, whom you're going to serve. Because it's really easy, if, you've had, if you had bad parents, for example, and by bad, I mean anything less than ideal or leading you toward the Lord, it's real easy to say, you know what, I didn't have great parents. And now all of, now all of a sudden that becomes the excuse that we have to where we don't live lives that honor Jesus Christ. Um, 
Maybe you came from a broken home or homes, and you can look back and say, you know what, I had a really tough upbringing. You still need to choose for yourself who you're going to serve. Or maybe you had godly parents, and you, you just now you sort of feel like, well, I'm going to skate along on the fact that they taught me everything. But you know, when we stand before God, when we stand before Jesus Christ, our parents won't be standing there with us. And we won't be standing with our kids. We'll be standing there alone. Choose for yourself, Joshua said. Leave your parents out of it. Whether they were good, whether they, are, they were bad, let's move on, and now you choose for yourself whom you're going to serve. That's one option, your parents. Second option, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. Well, we don't live among the Amorites, but then again, we do live among the Amorites. We live in an age where it is the law of God is just sort of tossed out. And we've got all kinds of heads sticking out of the shell. That's a very obvious choice. But Joshua says, as for me and my house, we don't pick either one of those. We're going to serve the Lord. That's our choice. And that's the choice that each of us has to make. Now let's fast forward 1,400 years, and we're going to catapult out of the book of Joshua, or Yeshua, and look at our Yeshua in John chapter 4. Because we're not done with Shechem. Jesus came to Shechem. And what do you know? The theme is very, very similar. Joshua chapter 4, uh, John chapter 4. While you're making your way there to John 4, let's summarize a little bit about what happens between Joshua 24 and John 4, because there was a lot of history. And what do you know? Shechem was still involved, very much. <clears throat> After King Solomon died, the nation gathered at Shechem to crown Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam uh, is there, and the people say, you know what? Solomon made it really tough on us. Lighten up and we'll serve you. And Rehoboam says, well, give me a couple of days to think about it. Goes away, asks the counsel of the, of the guys that he grew up with. The guys he grew up with said, oh, no, man, tell them that you're going to make it even harder. Be really rough with them. So Rehoboam comes back, takes that bad advice, and tells him that. What did he think was going to happen? Did he think they're going to go, oh, okay, well, you're right. Nope, they said, forget you, Rehoboam. We'll take our ten tribes and go home. And the nation split. There's a, now a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. You've got two kingdoms, two kings, and two capitals. And the first capital of the northern kingdom was Shechem. So this division happened at Shechem, and the, the, the first capital was Shechem. The capitals changed. You know, the dynasties changed in the north. It's fascinating. And if you just study the kings in the south and the southern kingdom, you had hundreds of years, but you had one dynasty, the House of David. In the northern kingdom, you had, uh, I think it was like eight different dynasties. Every, the change in hands and all kinds of coups and assassinations, and, and no one followed the Lord. As a result, the capital moved around. First it was at Shechem, then it was, I think, at a place called Terza, and then it landed finally at a place called Samaria. And once the northern kingdom was exiled, 
Assyria left some Assyrians and some Hebrews there, or some Jews there in the land, and they commingled. They they interbred with each other and created a mixed race known as the Samaritans after Samaria, the capital. And so the whole area became called Samaria. And it was made up of these half-breed Jews and Assyrians. So the Jews weren't that favorable toward these half-breeds. And that animosity went all the way up to the time of Christ. In fact, when uh, Zerubbabel came back after the exile, started rebuilding the temple, the Samaritans came down and said, hey, we'd like to help. Zerubbabel said, sorry, you're not full-blood Jews, you can't help. And the Samaritans said, well, fine, we'll take our toys and go home. And they went back to uh, Shechem, and one of the mountains there besides Shechem is called Mount Gerizim, and the, the Samaritans built their temple there on Mount Gerizim, and the Jews can have their temple down in Jerusalem. And so there was this schism between them, and that schism even is, goes on to today. So all of that brings us to John 4, where you've got the Jews and the Samaritans who lock horns and believe that, no, we've got the right place to worship. No, we've got the right place to worship. And you have John 4 starting in verse 3. We're told that he, Jesus, left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So let's pause there just a second. You don't have to turn to a map, but just imagine you've got Jerusalem in the south, Galilee in the north, and right in between is Samaria. And it says he had to pass through Samaria. Well, he didn't have to geographically. Geographically, he could have gone around Samaria. That's what most Jews did anyway, because they didn't want to go through Samaria. So the have to wasn't the geographical have to. It was a ministry have to. He had to go through Samaria. Verse 5, so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being weary from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, if you were to look uh, back at your map, maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't have both there, but Sikar was right beside Shechem. I mean, literally. Uh, you could, um, you could, you know, well, I'm going to say you throw a stone, but it's, it's less than half a mile from each other. They're real close. And we know they're real close because this is where Jacob dug his well. Remember, Jacob lived right by Shechem. And Jacob's well was still there. Wells don't move. And unless they fill it in, you know, it's still there. And there are very few places that you can go on the Holy Land today and be able to say Jesus was here because, you know, we don't know if he was literally right in the space, but for a couple of places. And that, this is one of the places because the well is the well. And so when you're standing there by this well and you look down in it, you realize, wow, Jesus was like right here. Um, one of the few places in the Holy Land that's so precise over the last 3,800 years, the location has been, been preserved. So J Jesus is sitting there by the well, and he doesn't have anything to draw with, and so he says to the woman, uh, give me a drink, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. Um, the sixth hour, to a Jew, the sixth hour was the sixth hour after sunup, so it was high noon. 
and it would have been the hottest part of the day. Some say that this sort of gives a signal as to maybe this lady, because she came to the well during the hottest part of the day, which is not typically when women would come get water. So the implication then suggests that she's here because she's trying to avoid the other ladies of the village. That's a bit, I don't know, uh, speculative, but it's possible, I guess. It was more that, uh, who knows, maybe she got a late start or whatever, but there was a divine appointment. There's a reason that she was there, and there was a reason that Jesus was there by himself. So the disciples had gone into McDonald's, and Jesus is left there alone by the well, and the woman comes up to him. Verse 9, Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Wow, what a conversation. When John wrote this in the original language there, verse 9, her words are emphatic. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman? I mean, we are, there are some major cultural no-nos being crossed here. First of all, what's a Jew even doing in Samaria? That was sort of iffy. But not only that, but you have a Jew talking to a Samaritan. Not only that, you have a man talking with a woman. Not only that, you have a, a rabbi talking with a woman. There are all sorts of cultural no-nos that Jesus is casting aside and engages this woman in a conversation. And she's shocked that Jesus would ask her for anything. And Jesus says, basically, in so many words, if you're shocked that, that I, a Jew, ask you a Samaritan for a drink, the real shock would be, if you really knew who I was, you'd be doing the asking. You'd be asking me and I would give you living water. And her mind is, stays wedged in the, in the natural. He had said eternal life, but that goes over her head. All she hears is, you mean I don't have to come here and draw water? Tell me the secret. And Jesus does a couple more times, a couple more efforts to show her, no, this, I'm not talking about actual living water. 
when living water is water, uh, sort of a, a metaphor for water that comes in a stream. There's several types of ways to get water in Israel. There's the best kind, which is living water, which is a spring, fresh, cool, abundant, doesn't stop. The second is a well, which is what they had. It's a big effort to get to. You've got to dig down. Sometimes uh, they go dry. And the least uh, desirable is a cistern, where you just dig a hole in the ground and it rains and you, and you work it to where the, the rain runs into it and it can evaporate and go dry. But living water, man, that is the best kind. She thinks Jesus has access to that. And he's saying, no, I'm talking about a different water altogether. In fact, Jesus says this statement in verse 13, and it's so true beyond water. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. This is the world's solution to thirst. The world's solution to hunger, to emptiness, to meaning, to purpose, to the reason you live. Jesus says you drink of this water, or meaning you drink of anything else, and it's going to fill you up like cotton candy. As soon as it's in your mouth, it's gone, and you've got to have more. You drink this, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink of what I'm offering you, it's going to fill up that, that empty spot that you're trying to fill with all this other stuff. It's going to fill you up to eternal life. It'll, it'll so fill you up that it'll overflow. Jesus is talking about uh, salvation, not about water. According to rabbinical teaching, a woman was only to be married three times at the most. So it's no wonder this woman was excited about uh, or felt convicted when Jesus clearly reveals that he knows about her life. She's been married five times, Jesus said, and she's now basically just given up on marriage. She's with, she's with a man, she's not even... Not only full with marriage, because that clearly doesn't work. Um, I once spoke with a woman in my family, so she's a woman that I love dearly. And she told me this. She said, I don't care if I have to get married ten times. I'm going to find a man who will make me happy. And she was well on her way. Uh, when she died, tragically. Thankfully, she knew the Lord. And thankfully, now, she's found that man. And I'm thrilled. But what I love about this is that Jesus sets the situation in a provid providential way that he knew that he was going to meet this woman. He knew her need. He knew her past. He knew her pain. He knew the, the well that she continued to throw her bucket down to try to fill her life, and it wasn't working. Jesus met her, and in spite of her past, Jesus found her. And Jesus held out his hand and offered her what she needed that she didn't even know she needed. And that was him. It was him. And Jesus always does that. Also, something else Jesus does is he won't let you hide from reality. 
He'll give you proddings and pushings that you can try to wiggle out of, but eventually you're going to come right back around to the fact that Christ knows your past. But here's the good news. He knows it, but it doesn't get in the way of the offer of him offering you a, a, a new chance to renew your heart for God. The man at the well was a stranger, and yet he knew all about her. Jesus knows you too. He knows all about you and all about me. And he knows even more than we're willing to admit. He knows more than we know about ourselves, and yet he loves us anyway. In just a few words, he showed her her sinful past, her need for forgiveness, and her barrier of sin the barrier that kept her away from seeking God. So what does she do? As soon as she comes up to the real issue, and that's her sin, as soon as Jesus reveals that to her, what does she do? She tries to deflect it. Look at verse 19. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Yeah, you can read her mind, knows her past. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. So she points behind her up to Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans had built their temple. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So she changes the subject and says, hey, let's talk about this old argument of where we're supposed to worship, on Gerizim or in Jerusalem, Jew or Samaritan. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Notice it's not for the Jews. It's from the Jews. Again, it was through Abraham that the blessing was to come. It's from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What had Joshua told the people? To worship the Lord in sincerity and truth. Jesus, in that same location, 1,400 years later, says, those who seek the Lord seek him in spirit and truth. And we've got two different languages, Hebrew and Greek, going on here, but it's the same idea. So you've got two Jesuses, or two Yeshuas, on multiple centuries apart, saying the same, basically the same message at the same place. And that is, abandon your idols and choose today whom you're going to serve. For this woman, the past that she was being called to abandon was not an idol that you could bury under a tree, but was a past and was a devotion to relationships and to men, as opposed to letting God fill the emptiness in her life. Verse 25, she deflects one more time. The woman said to him, I know that when Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, when that one comes, he will declare to us all things. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. <laughs> all excuse is gone now. You're waiting for that ultimate man. Here you have a woman who's gone from husband to husband to husband to husband to husband, and now has another man, and she's still waiting for a man, ultimately waiting for the Messiah. When my ultimate man comes, then I'll deal with what you're talking about. Jesus says, he's here. 
You're looking at him. I'm he. And boy, what timing. Verse 27, the disciples show up with the cheeseburgers. <laughs> well, probably not. That's not kosher. So sh show up with the hamburgers. And the woman leaves. But notice verse 28, the woman leaves her water pot. The whole reason she came just leaves it, rushes back into the city, and becomes a witness for the one who just changed her life. Jesus had the woman at the well, but I encountered a woman at the wall. When I was in Israel one time, wow, was it already noon? <laughs> who was it that just said that? I said, who, uh, is it noon? She said, mm-hmm. Well, as Dr. Toussaint used to say, we'll go over a little, but I promise I'll never do it again. <laughs> no promises. Anyway, let me just tell you this story real quick. But there was this woman at the, at the wall, the Western Wall in Jerusalem. And uh, back at the time when I was working for Insight for Living, somehow this lady knew that I was working for Insight for Living. And so she came up to me and she said, um, you need to broadcast the, uh, the way that Gentiles can be saved. And I said, well... Actually, that's exactly what we do. And she said, no, 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 no. She said, you need to tell them this, this, and this, and this. And I recognized some of the commandments she was saying were from or mirrored the Ten Commandments. And I said, oh, you mean the Ten Commandments? She said, no. She says, the Ten Commandments, those are for the Jews. I said, really? I said, do you keep them? She says, well, not perfectly. I said, well, what do you do about that? Because, I mean, the law, the Torah, says you've got to keep it perfectly. She says, well, well, I, and then I told her, well, you don't have a, a temple to sacrifice in? How do you deal with your sin? She says, well, we just pray. Right now we just pray. And when the Messiah comes, then he will show us the truth. And I thought about the woman at the well. Because though not a Jew, this Samaritan woman told Jesus the exact same thing. We're waiting for the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, then he'll deal with all that. And I told this dear woman, I said, you know what? And we turned. We were at the wall, and I turned. I said, about 300 yards right over there, the Messiah came. And he actually died as the final sacrifice for my sins and for your sins. Those sins that you have broken from the Ten Commandments. Whoo, boy, she began backing up, literally. She literally backed up and kept talking to where I couldn't interrupt her. And then about, about the time there was a, a fair distance there, she turned and, and, and just left. But I thought about the woman at the well, and I thought, what a different response, because when the Messiah appeared to, the, to this dear woman, she clearly repented and believed in Jesus. And... Uh, Anyway, I think about that woman at the wall often. So let me just challenge you as we wrap up now that I've gone over and ask you a simple question. What well are you drawing from today? Maybe you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, but honestly, you've got a lot of heads still sticking out of your shell. You're allowing a lot of different lives and voices to lead you as opposed to the Lord. 
Jesus' words to the woman are Jesus' words to us when he said, anyone who drinks from this will thirst again. It's not just true for someone who doesn't know Christ. It's true for us as well. Only Christ can fill the empty void in our life that we're trying to fill with everything else. Let's pray. Father, Joshua brought the nation once again to Shechem, and as the text says, they presented themselves to God. And we do that today as well. Father, we open up our hearts to you, our imperfect hearts. And if Jesus was to meet us by the well today, he could clearly point out all of the, all of the idols that we are dragging along with us in our walk with Jesus Christ. Thank you that you are so gracious to point those out very gently as life goes on. And also, would you give us the courage to leave those idols, to bury them under the tree at Shechem, that we would throw our bucket down no other well but the well of living water through Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you. Judges, next time.